Brokers can be the lifeblood of an investor's business. Getting access to incredible deals and being able to analyze upside can lead to massive portfolio growth. Today's guest, Charles, has been a real estate broker for over 28 years. He's going to give us his insights on why cap rates have compressed so much and how new investors can show brokers they're serious about doing deals in their markets. We'll hear from Charles after a little bit about us. This is Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate, where we guide you through the relentless pursuit of financial independence. I'm your host, Justin Moy, Managing Partner at Perpetual Wealth Capital, a multifamily real estate investing firm that lets everyday people invest passively in income-producing apartment buildings. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Building Passive Income and Wealth Through Real Estate. Today, I'm really excited to be sitting down with Charles Bultice. Now, Charles is president of Reformation Asset Management and brings over 28 years of real estate investing experience to the table to help his clients purchase, manage, value add, rehab, anything that they could possibly do to their real estate assets to help them build that wealth. Charles, we are excited to have you here. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Justin. I'm excited to be here. Hey, so first tell us what you do and why you do it. What we are is a real estate brokerage that focuses on the investment client that is looking for a value-add solution that's a one-stop solution. So we help them find the properties. We help them then develop the rehab plan, the marketing plan and management plan, implement all plans, and then allow them to take the property that they purchased and have it successfully increase in value exponentially. So if you're doing all that, what do they got to do? Nothing. (laughs) Show up and sign the paperwork. Yeah. (laughs) Single family, people, office, multifamily, or what do you work with the most? Well, a real estate market, as it goes through its period of discovery, is going to start with the single family home. The flip is always the single family home to start. But once everybody understands that that's the way to make money, it becomes harder to make money. So it goes from the single family home to the duplex, to the fourplex, to the eight unit building. Once you've exhausted the supply of multifamily, then you have to look at the other secrets like condominiumization, new development, rezoning. So are you seeing a lot of that happen now, mostly because people have kind of been there, done that with residentials and multifamily, and it's just getting so competitive now? Are you seeing a lot more of those, I guess, kind of creative deal structures? It's basically a saturation of the market is the point we're at right now. Durham as a city is not that large. The Triangle as a region is not that large. And so we didn't have a huge supply of existing multifamily for this process to happen. And when it did happen, we've exhausted the supply in the course of the last five years. What is that process? And how did we get to where we are today where cap rates are just so compressed and some investors are sitting there shaking their head going, how am I getting outbid by this much? I mean, what do they think is going to happen? What do their returns look like? Can you tell us kind of how we got here? It's a combination, I think, of two things. And number one is the requirements of the institutional investor to seek yield. So we didn't used to have the institutional investors bringing their funds into the real estate markets like we see today. You've got BlackRock and you've got large hedge funds and equity funds that are entering the market looking to capture some form of yield in this yield-starved environment. Mm -hmm. The second thing that's happened is that we've had a deceleration of our interest rates. We are at the end of a 35-year bull market in the bond. Mm -hmm. 
As a result, the compression of the interest rates have led that affordability index on a path where cap rates continue to move down as rents moved up. But we're at a tipping point. So tell us about those huge institutional investors that you just mentioned. I mean, BlackRock, everybody knows BlackRock in this industry. And they're chasing that yield and they're kind of getting pushed into real estate. Were they not always in real estate or what exactly changed that? I guess made them get a little bit more aggressive into this space, which kind of impact how the rest of us buy real estate. What happened is that they started moving into the single family arena, which is something that historically wasn't the case. It was commercial, it was retail, it was multifamily. And what caused them to move into that arena, in my opinion, is the fact that we are in for a cyclical change in housing because of the fact that we are ending that 35-year bull market in the bond. We will not see interest rates likely go back down to 2%, percent And as a result, as that rate moves up, That means that the rents are moving up and that's increasing the yield on those properties that the hedge funds, equity funds, et cetera, have been purchasing. Because one thing that I think a lot of people out there right now, they're investing in real estate, they're getting aggressive, they're underwriting properties, whether it's single family, multifamily, they're pulling rental comps and making their pro formas and they come in with an offer and they find out, oh, you were like way below our top offer. You're way below what the other people are doing. And so it goes back to kind of what I was saying before is like, well, how is my pro forma that much off? It's a forecast model. Mm-hmm. You have to look at the forecast model that you're trying to implement. And this happens all the time. I'll see people, I'll send them a property that they want to dissect themselves. And they'll come back and say, Charles, this is a 3.9 cap. I can't do this. Mm-hmm. But that's based on current metrics. If you're not forecasting where the metrics are going and why they're going there, then you're going to miss the fact that that's really an eight cap property in disguise. Tell us about that, because when people judge cap rates like that, it is tough to buy a property at like a three cap. And you understand, okay, there's upside or there's a business plan. But at the same time, that business plan costs time and it costs money. So it's almost like, well, hey, how much do I need to put in for it to get to that six to eight cap range? I'm buying it at a three. I need to take two plus years, maybe of three to four cap or three to 4% returns. Are you just seeing people take lower yield now? Are you seeing people just very optimistic about rent continuing to rise at the rates that they've been rising? Or are you seeing people just kind of get aggressive and just say, hey, I just want these assets because inflation is going crazy. It's going to do better in the assets as well. How has, I guess, the mindset of the investors changed? You're going to see both of those mindsets. You're going to see the people that are saying, this is the best hedge against inflation. And even though it's not a great yield, it's the best product I can find to fight inflation. And then you're going to have the other people that are looking at the possibility of having a lower rate of return for the first two years of ownership for a much greater rate of return down the road when that project is complete. Let's remember, who are the biggest analyzers of risk on the planet? The banks. And as long as the banks are still giving you money on a good property, then you know that you're in good company. Following somewhat news of the lending landscape and how things are changing, I mean, we all know rates are going up. And I actually read an article today, I forgot it was Freddie or Fannie is pulling back their class A lending and for more favor of workforce housing. Are you seeing any changes in the lending landscape that investors need to be aware of? 
One of the things that you just mentioned is the light tech financing, and there is going to be a large push toward low-income housing tax credits and different organizations that are going to be pushing workforce housing productivity and creation. And that's the core of the market you should be seeking. I don't think that you should be pushing your Class A product right now. I think that market is saturated. But going for the workforce housing, it's all gambling. It's all investing. There's risk. But I would go that way. And the other thing that I would say about that is in regards to financing options, what you should be looking for as an investor is look for that bank that wants to be your partner on a value add deal. Mm -hmm. Find that property that the bank says, you know what, I'll give you your $13 million loan and I'll give you $5 million in rehab. And you put down 20% of the project cost, not 1.8 times two, and then one year interest only. That's allowing you to get into that property with only 20% down, have the bank share your risk, have a lower upfront payment. And then at the end, the bank knows what you've got. You've got that eight, nine, 10 cap property. Are you seeing that? Because one thing that some investors are hesitant on is almost that exact strategy, right? Because we know rates are going up and the mindset of, well, what are rates going to be in a year or two years when my interest only period is up and now it's time to refi into something more stable? Are you seeing a lot of that risk out there or do you think that risk is kind of blown out of proportion? How do you think the future forecasts of lending kind of impacts these investors' decisions to take on big value add projects like that today? Well, I mean, a crystal ball is something I've been looking to invest in, but I don't own one. I do think that we use history as our guide. And based on what we've seen in the past, we can make predictive models for the future. And I have one client, for example, that we're buying 108 doors. We're paying $12 million for the property, $6 million in rehab, but the finished product is then worth $29 million. The return on that is tremendous. So yes, upfront, he's going to have a little bit lower cash flow, but at the end of the day, he's then going to refinance that into a brand new long-term loan with very low debt to equity yeah. and have tremendous cash flow. Got it. So, I mean, as long as that upside is enough, I mean, you feel as though, hey, it's not going to matter because you're building so much equity into this property over the two years of rehab period or whatever the case may be. For commercial real estate, are you seeing buyers using brokers to represent them or is it mostly just going to be the seller's broker that's kind of typically been in the past, at least for us? Yeah, the seller's broker would love to be the only broker. They're typically not also realtors. They're just brokers, not realtors. So they don't participate with the multiple listing service. They don't always cooperate with other brokers. So that's touch and go based on that company's philosophy. My firm, we represent buyers. We have people that come down from groups that they represent in other states and meet with me as an equity fund. And they want me to help them find commercial land to develop or find them the deals. So I will represent them as their broker. I will ask for compensation from the seller's broker. If the seller's broker won't compensate me, then my client will compensate me. So let's say there is a broker representing a seller, and now there's another broker in there. The cautionary to that is, well, hey, are we going to get outpriced because we have to make room for another commission? Or can we get more aggressive if there was only one broker on the deal? Are you seeing that really impact buyers' abilities to acquire properties? Or has that been a non-issue in your opinion? It depends, again, on the broker you're dealing with. If I'm dealing with an honest, equitable broker that's on the seller's side, they're going to look out for what's in their client's best interest. 
if they're only concerned about their commission, then it doesn't matter what I do. I can't change their personality. And then it's a question of literally sending a letter to the owner of the property and saying, here's my client's offer. I presented it to your broker. I'm not sure you received it. You want to put a seller broker on the spot. That's a great way to do it. And so when people are looking for that broker, whether it's to represent them in the sale or the buy, what are some things that they should look for? I mean, in this industry, a lot of times it's, hey, this guy or girl sold it to me, so I'll list it with them. Sometimes that's not so viable. What are some things that people should look out for when they're looking to enlist a broker to help them either buy or sell their property? Well, trust is a big factor. This is a large investment for anybody and you need to feel comfortable with the party that you're hiring. So get that gut feeling about the person, ask them questions about their level of experience, try to give them bad experiences you've had in the past and ask them how they would have dealt with them. At the end of the day, I can tell you what designations to search for or what degrees to ask them if they have, how they deal with the problem and how they deal with you as a person is something that you need to identify and appreciate yourself. No transaction's perfect. No matter how well you vet the buyers, things always come up or things go weary and there needs to be adjustments made. So are you talking about asking them, hey, can you tell me about a past maybe issue that you've dealt with or how would you handle certain situations? What are some of the specific situations that you see come up a lot? Lay out your scenario to this person. Tell them what your intention is, what your goal is. I have this property over here. I bought it for this. My basis is that. What am I looking at as far as recapture of depreciation? What is my capital gain? How do I reinvest that in a 1031? What types of options are available to me in a 1031? What's the 200% rule in a 1031? What's the 95% rule in a 1031? Ask them the questions that make you confident that they're the person that can best handle your needs. So are they kind of iffy about their answers? Do they seem really confident when they're answering or do they seem like, hey, they're kind of thinking or second guessing? I really, really like a lot of those. Are buyer broker agreements popular? Like if I enlist your help and say, hey, I'm looking for multifamily, 50 to 100 units in this area. Can you help me look for one? For anybody listening, a buyer broker agreement essentially says, hey, I'm representing you as the buyer. I'm working on your behalf. If you purchase a property without me, you owe me a commission, or if you we purchase the property together and the seller doesn't pay a commission, you owe me a commission. Are those common in this industry that you're seeing? And is it something that you recommend? They are common if the broker or the brokerage uses them. I personally do not use them. I know what my risk is if I work with a buyer and they choose not to use me. But again, I'm out there trying to build trust. I don't need a piece of paper that I need to then sue them to try and get paid to back that up. That's silly to me. I don't have the time to go to court. From that buyer's perspective, let's say that they are shopping around for brokers to help. And this industry is notorious for a lot of people wanting to get into it, but not really getting into it, right? So there's those newer investors out there looking to break into the industry and they're looking for some broker help, whether it's asking you about your listings or asking for help buying a listing. What are some things that some of those newer investors should do to let you know, hey, I'm serious about this and I'm worth your time because I will buy something in your area and I'm going to be an investor in this area. What are some things that that new investor should do? That's a great question. And the reason I say that, Justin, is because most new investors don't know what to ask and they hit me with buzzwords like value add and flip. And what I really want to do is ascertain what their risk level is, how much their asset base is, I want to educate them, but I don't know what they don't know yet. So be honest with the broker. 
tell them what your level of knowledge is, and then look for somebody that knows more than you do. I've also heard stories of, yeah, you know, I was being honest with brokers. I'll tell them, hey, I'm new in the game. Never hear from the guy or girl again. How can, I guess, that investor show you, hey, I'm new, but I'm serious. Because I'm sure you get a ton of calls or emails from people and maybe one and done. And that's it. And you're like, well, thank goodness I didn't spend a lot of time on this person because now I don't know, are they dead? But, you know, I just haven't heard from them. Maybe they moved on and got another job, whatever the case may be. So is there something that you look for? Like, hey, this person has followed up with me every month for six months. Okay, now let me give them a little more time a day. Or is there activities? I know you talked about like buzzwords. What are some things that are going to instill confidence in you as a broker that this investor is serious and I'm going to invest some more time into them? I tell them what I do, how I do it, and that my philosophy is to be their broker for life. And if they want to manage their own property, they want to manage their own rehab, they're going to run into a lot of pitfalls. And then they're going to ask me to save them and get them out of trouble. I don't want to train you how to be that guy. I want to help you invest and make money. So if you'll listen to me, if you'll follow my system, if you'll literally show up, sign the documents, and then walk away, then I'll work with you. If you're going to come talk to me as a new investor and tell me how to do my job, but I've done hundreds and hundreds of these, then I really, really don't have time for you. And I'm not being cocky. That's just the reality of how much time there is in a day. I really like all the value here. I mean, whether someone's new or seasoned, a man of your experience has so much value to add in any portion of the business. Who should get a hold of you? And, and how can people get in touch with you if they want to learn a little bit more? Thank you very much, Justin. I think that whether they're a new investor or a seasoned investor, if they're looking for multifamily information, how to rehab, management, et cetera, my website is reformationassetmanagement.com. My name, of course, you introduced me, Charles Boltice. They can go to LinkedIn, website, either one, I'm out there. And I'd be happy to answer questions and get to know some new people. Awesome, Charles. Thanks so much. I mean, tons and tons of value in this episode. Listeners, we're going to put all of Charles' links and everything in the show notes. And while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Building Generational Wealth and Passive Cash Flow Through Multifamily Real Estate. Charles, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Justin.